Welcome to Rise and Thrive, Conversations for Greatness. We bring you captivating conversations with extraordinary individuals who have conquered challenges, achieved greatness, and are making a positive impact in the world. This is your go-to source for inspiration and motivation. I'm your host, John Merkis. Our guest today is a COO, the Chief Optimism Officer for the Centre for Optimism an organization that helps everyone and anyone become more optimistic to foster realistic and infectiously optimistic leaders. He's known as a radical optimist. He's an enthusiastic speaker on positive leadership, the founder of the Australian Leadership Program, Project, I should say. He asks all who he meets, what makes you optimistic? Victor Purton, welcome to the show. I'm so delighted that you're here. Uh, John, it is absolutely wonderful to join you. It's positive. It's for building a better world. And remember, John, you may be asking the questions, but at some point I will ask you, what makes you optimistic? I'm looking forward to that and I'd expect nothing less. I'd expect nothing less. Now, I could have spent half the show listing your accomplishments. Commissioner to the Americas, 18 years parliamentarian, businessman, on the boards, board service, Senior Engagement Advisor to the Australian G20 Presidency and author of a couple of books. And I'm sure the list goes on. So you are super accomplished. And it's just, I'm just so grateful that, that, you're, that you're on the show. And I do see some similarities actually with, the, with this show and the Centre for Optimism because we're about igniting passion, sharing wisdom, fostering a supportive environment. So I'd really love to know, how did the Centre for Optimism start? How was it born? Ah, the Centre for Optimism, uh, that could take the whole hour. So stop me when you get bored. I came back from having worked in the United States, first as Commissioner in the Americas, uh, and everywhere I went, it didn't matter from Canada to Argentina, there's this positive stereotype of Australians. It was a door opener. The chair of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Um, our projects were made easy by that positive stereotype. And then in the G20, which was, you know, the super elite, you know, the presidents, the prime ministers, the finance ministers, the central bank governors, it was exactly the same. You know, it was, you know, we just trust you. And, you know, sometimes you have to negotiate and the like. But the nice thing is they know Aussies tend to be no bullshit. And, and so, again, it was made easy. And then I came back to Melbourne and I was stunned by the negativity of language and, and this strange expression that Australians are doing it hard, you know, hard compared to whom? The, mm. the Sudanese, the Yemenis, the Ukrainians. Um, and so I set up the Australian Leadership Project and we interviewed 2,500 people on the qualities of Australian leadership from Bill George at Harvard to the guys at INSEAD, to people on the factory floor. And after two and a half years of research, we concluded Australian leadership is pretty good. And we were still bewildered by the negativity. So I go forward half a year and I was on the final panel of the Global Integrity Summit. And it was, you know, nice people, intelligent speakers, but God, it was miserable. You know, the end of integrity, the end of media freedom, the end of conscience, and so I changed my speech on the final panel to the case for optimism. And it electrified the room. 
Helen Clark, who was then the head of the UNDP and the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, said, Victor, turn that into a book and I will endorse it. So I did and she did. Um, and that started a one-year speaking circuit. And then out of the blue, um, a minister, as in, you know, in Australia, ministers, secretaries in the Americas, asked me to do a project on innovation. And I said, well, look, I won't charge you anything. I only want you to make a speech on the connection between optimism and innovation. I didn't know this guy was a complete pessimist. So he said, no fear am I going to do that. And he said, besides which, what could the government do that Victor Purton himself can't do globally? And that night, John, was born the Centre for Optimism. Wow, what, what, a, what a wonderful story. And um, thanks for sharing how that was born. And, so, and uh, we'll have all the show, we'll, all the links in the show notes. Uh, I've been hunting around the site more than more than once, and it is a great source of inspiration, as well as uh, as your books, which I'd love to touch on uh, shortly. And that pessimism is interesting, right? Because we see it in the news; it seems to sell, it seems to grab our attention. Now, I'm the kind of person that I like optimistic stuff and positive things, so I'm gravitate more towards that. And I'll have an eye on the news, but definitely not as um, enveloped in it as that I used to be, because I found that it's not good for my well-being. I'd rather, we say this in the show sometimes, I'd rather surround myself with positive influences and positive inputs. So it was really interesting that there was that negativity around, but your speech on optimism was the one that resonated and and led to, to other things. And, and in fact, I call it my revelation or my eureka moment, that the problem was not the problem of leadership, the problem is the fog of pessimism. Yeah. And the new president of Singapore, who was only sworn in last month, uh, made a speech last year when he was the senior minister of Singapore. He said this collapse of optimism in the developed world is the most serious public policy issue for the world. Mm. And um, you recall in the, in the coronation that lady who looked like an Amazon in the blue dress holding the sword for the new king, Penny Mordaunt. Penny Mordaunt said that the contemporary battle is not between left and right. The contemporary battle is between the optimists and the pessimists. And we need optimism for the hard yards ahead. And in fact, even two weeks ago, um, the new president of the World Bank, in, in setting the new renewed mission for the World Bank, said it has to be an institution that sows optimism through the world. So, John, your podcast could not come at a better time for the world. Thanks, Victor. I really feel that way. I'm passionate about it. I'm loving it. It's it's, it's not an effort. It's when you're doing something you love, as you would know, it's effortless or it feels that, feels that way. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of things to do. But it's uh, so invigorating. And I did want to ask you, do you think people are born an optimist or can you learn that? Um, people, there's definitely a genetic component. Uh, science says it's only around 25%. Now, in the research I've done, you know, I've done it in country towns and, you know, you get a lot more natural optimism. You do it with a group of nurses and midwives, it's much more mindset and life experience. So there's a component of, of natural optimism, uh, a component of genetic optimism, but the view is that most of it 
um, is a set of personal decisions. And it was quite funny. I did a large conference earlier in the year in Brisbane, and I did an exercise I call my optimism superpower. And so we'd gone around the room, and two of the people in sharing what made them optimistic said they were re- they were optimistic as a rebellion against their miserable parents. They said they couldn't bear, you know, watching the news and the prime minister's an idiot and the leader of the opposition's an idiot and everyone's an idiot and, and the world's going to pieces. And these two people now in their 30s, you know, built their own mindset. So, so the science says for most people it's around life experience. We become more optimistic as we get older. And it's because we know whatever mistakes we make, whatever successes we make, the sun will still rise in the morning. Uh, you know, particularly me, you know, um, one of the habits I have is up early in the morning to watch first light. You know, I love, you can see behind me, I love the colours of orange and yellow, you know, with that purple you sometimes get in the cloud. And the other day I'd driven my daughter to rowing, at, you know, and got her there at 5.30 in the morning and got home and it was still air, this orange-yellow light, And in my garden, I have a set of roses, including one that is orange and yellow called Tequila Sunrise and another that is called Fearless. And to walk into the perfumed garden of orange and yellow roses and orange and yellow sky, it lifts people. So, John, that's what we've got to do, you know, and particularly in these tough times at the moment, you know, with war in the Middle East and Mm, the like. you know, sometimes it's just a matter of listening, you know, and um, but helping people to understand that these things have happened before and we will get through it. I did want to ask you, especially in the face of all the global challenges at the moment, you know, what advice do you give to people? And I'm hearing some of it now in, in your previous answer, but I guess specifically with, you know, wars, things like that going on, you know, Sometimes it can be challenging, I would imagine, to in the face of all that adversity, to be optimistic. Yeah, well, optimism is a state of mind, not a state of the world. Gotcha. So if you go back to the deep learning of, say, you know, the, the, the German-Jewish psychotherapist Viktor Frankl, who survived the Holocaust and wrote that very popular book, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, but the addendum to Man's Search for Meaning is called Tragic Optimism. So not you know, whether you're in a concentration camp or in the, the glorious surroundings that you and I are in, mm. doing your best in whatever circumstances. And Madeleine Albright, you know, who was the Secretary of State in Bill Clinton's administration, she used to call herself a worried optimist because she said, you know, optimism, the definition of optimism is a belief that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. So Madeleine always knew that things were going to work out in the end. But as Secretary of State, you know, with the bombing of Serbia and the war um, in those days in the Balkans and, you know, there were stresses in the Middle East, she had a lot to worry about, but she could do it. And, you know, in the current circumstances, you know, whether you've got Jewish friends or Palestinian friends, you know, the important thing is to embrace them and to listen to them and to listen to their concerns. And if there is a comment or, or the like you can make. And then the other thing is just what you're doing, John. You know, it, it's we've got to keep going 
sharing the stories of good, the stories of heroism, the stories of advance. You know, last week they announced a new malaria vaccine. You know, that will save the lives of 1,000 children every week going forward. And, and so those are the stories of success and heroism and the like mm. um, that, that we've got to support and endorse. So, you know, tough times are made for the optimists. I love that expression. And I, I love how you've mentioned that it's a mindset rather than looking at your circumstances and the definition of an, of an optimist. And uh, we have a favourite affirmation on the show, which is uh, all is well, everything is working out for my highest good. Out of this situation, only good will come. That's marvellous. You know, John, um, my favourite definition of optimism actually goes back nearly 650 years to a lady called Mother Julian of Norwich. And she was in the Black Plague, you know, which made COVID look like a picnic because they didn't have medication and they didn't have news services and the internet. And she got sick and, um, you know, people assumed she was going to die and she prayed and said, if I recover, I will devote myself to God. She did recover and her family must have had money because they built a cell for her at Norwich Cathedral. And, and, you know, she used to pray there and dispense wisdom. And her book is the oldest surviving book in English by a woman. Uh, and it's called The Revelations. And the famous line in it that is still in poetry, uh, Oxford University commissioned a new choral piece this year, is all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And it's this shall, you know, it's, I'm in the poo, you know, I'm in the middle of the Black Plague. You know, nobody knows what's going on, but it's all going to work out. And famously, John Lennon, you know, most of your listeners will probably have heard of the, the singer from the, on, and composer and songwriter from the Beatles. He famously said, um, and if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. So it's that real notion of persistence in the face of difficulty. And John, you can't persist. You can't be resilient unless you're optimistic. What's the point of persisting unless you believe something's going to get better? Yeah, what's the point of writing a good strategy if you don't believe things are going to get better? And then innovation, the science, John says, it, pessimists can't innovate because they get ground down by what went wrong, who went wrong, I went wrong. You know, and you think of someone like Dyson, the vacuum cleaner guy, 5,000 iterations of the bagless vacuum cleaner, 15 years of failure and experiment. Yeah, he's a billionaire now and runs innovation centres all over the world. But, God, it took persistence and optimism to get there. I've got a Dyson sitting in my laundry. I'm going to think about that every time I vacuum now. <laughs> when you get to your 5,000th podcast, remember that one. <laughs> yeah, that, thank you. That's, uh, that's just wonderful. I can really see and feel and hear. I really feel it. After this interview, I'm going to be able to feel like I'm going to run through a brick wall because these words just uplift and make you feel good and, and and make you want to take the action that can make a difference in your life and other lives. So I John, think, can I share one with you? Last please. week I gave a speech at a very large international engineering firm. And uh, when I, as I was coming in the door, you had a, an iPad and you had to type in your name and pose for a photo. And then, you know, like all engineering firms, there's then a safety induction on the screen. And, and the first thing was, 
don't write emails or read emails on your phone whilst walking around. And uh, so when I got in there, I said to the boss, I said, can you add a few more words to that and smile and say hello to everyone? You know, if there's one thing your listeners and your viewers can learn from this, just remember today and tomorrow, don't be looking at your screen as you're walking down the corridor. Look into the eyes of the people you're talking to. Doesn't work in every culture, but nine out of 10 cultures. And then when you're walking down the street, in my country, there's a survey done by the world's largest insurance company that says 95% of Australians want strangers to smile and say hello. Now, then there's a big lie in the statistics, John, because 85% of them claim to do it. Now, you and I just have to walk down the street to know 85% of people are not looking us in the eye and saying hello or smiling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you do, 90% of people will look up and just beam. You know, if you just say something like, what a beautiful day or what a beautiful sunshine, you lift yourself and you lift them. And so if there's one habit I can send your listeners away with, that's the one for today and tomorrow. Thank you for that. I've actually, one of my questions was say, what are the things that you, that you would recommend? So what I can hear, well, obviously smile and say hello to people as you pass them. Enjoy nature and the beauty of nature. I know you like the sun uh, rises, maybe sunsets for others that, that, that don't necessarily want to be up that early. I'm an oh, early. You're, you're starting to singing soon from Fiddler on the Roof, you know, <laughs> rise, sunset. I, I, I'm best in the mornings and I, I love that. When people say I'm not a morning person, I, I actually... And so I feel sorry for them, but I think, oh, there's so much joy to be had in the mornings. What it, what it tells me is you're staying up too late if you're not a morning person. You nailed it there, John. Joy. Yeah. Joy. You know, my mum was, was really interesting on that, you know, this American pursuit of happiness, you know, the right to pursue happiness. Hmm. But happiness hmm. is tough. You know, there's a hundred things, you know, and you can be sad because you've just been in a traffic jam or you're sad because you've watched the news or you're hmm. in grief because someone you know died or someone you admired died. So capturing those moments of joy, you know, that Mm. sniffing the rose, Mm. um, watching your child do something interesting, looking at a bee land on lavender. Um, If you can just capture those little moments of joy, Mm. um, that's the thing. If if you're asking me for my third tip now, and and we're, we're talking in Australia, but it applies whether you're in Austria or France or or the like. In Australia, when people greet people, they say, g'day, how are you? Or hello, how are you? It's instinctive. It's in the reptile brain. And the instinctive response from 70% of people is, not bad or not too bad. And I'm thinking, I hope you've got a higher standard than that. So we've done experiments in prison, in hospital, in corporates, We ask people to stop asking, how are you? And replace it with something like, what's been the best thing in your day? Great. And it could be something quite little, John. We did an event at a a city council and it was the first time the people had got together since COVID. And as we're going around the table, what's been the best thing in your day? And a woman said, I drove my autistic son to school and he was calm. I mean, we were almost all in tears at that Mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. That such a little thing 
would bring her such joy. So the other thing I'd really, the other habit I'd love your listeners to carry away for today and tomorrow, and if they do it for two days, I guarantee they will do it for the rest of their lives. In the beginning of a conversation, what's been the best thing in your day? That's such a great question to ask people to really talk to someone on a real level straight away without it just being a surface level kind of thing. And well, the Scandinavians always look at Australians, you know, when they say, g'day, how are you? And the Scandinavians, of course, have that simple greeting, tuck, or something like that. And uh, they don't ask strangers, how are you? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so why do we? Why is it this strange habit? But you can break that habit and, and ask people to think about the best thing in your day. And, and our stats, roughly 50% of people will give you something straight away. 30% of people will need a little prompter. You know, did, did you watch the sunrise? Did you have a coffee? Now, 20% of people are having a bad day. But, you know, the thing is, you know, not bad or not too bad doesn't give you any permission. But if someone says, oh, well, you know, I haven't been well or, you know, my kid's sick, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And, and so you can actually do something for someone yeah. if they say, that's not a good day. While you were mentioning earlier about looking at people and saying hello as you pass them, I am lucky enough, I live near the beach and I go down a walking track and I'm passing people all the time. And I did start to do that and I noticed how friendly people were back to me. Yeah. So the statistics through the research that you've done, I've, I, it's anecdotal, but it's, it's happening. I can, see that, I can see that it's out there. And I was... We're all human. I was a little grumpy one morning when I was going on my walk and I didn't want to say hello to anyone. And what I realized was I made that all about me yeah. instead of what about them. Yeah. I could have made a difference in someone else's life, but because I was thinking about me and what was going on in my life or whatnot, it's like, oh, I'm not going to say hello to anyone today. But I like that I've realized that to, to, to put myself in check to say, next time when you go out there, yeah, 95% of the time, you know, it's joyous, I'm happy, I'm, with the, I'm in my favourite place in the world and it's easy. But to check yourself and maybe for others as well, if you feel like you don't want to do that, don't make it about you. Make it about the other people that might need a smile in their day. That might be one of the best things that's happened to them in their day, that someone smiled and actually looked them in the eye and said hello because we think we're separate but we are all in this together. But you're a jolly looking bloke, you know, so what you'll do is create an effect. One of our Centre for Optimism members had to move to Queensland just before the lockdowns and he'd moved up for the job, but the family was then stuck in Melbourne under the lockdowns. And so he's in this new town on his own and every morning he walked around the lake saying hello to people. And within a week, you built a new friend group. So, John, what starts to happen is people throw it at you before you throw it at them. And when I go to my supermarket now, they're so used to me saying, what's been the best thing in your day? And there's this girl who looks quite eccentric. You know, she's got purple hair and studs in her face and the like. And the other day she said to me, you're my favourite customer because you always lift me. And it's pretty simple stuff, you know. Yep. A joy to see you. What's been the best thing in your day? And often she'll say, oh, well, I just started work. It's a, a bit early to have the best thing in my day. Mm -hmm. But it resonates. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm actually caring yep. um, and helping her to lift. And, um, you know, it's very funny. Um, one, of, one of the guys there, um, a, a, an Asian Australian, 
And, uh, you know, we, we started this when we were in masks. And when we were unmasked, he looked at me and he said, you're the guy that told me to change my greeting, aren't you? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, I don't have time to listen to all those good stories. It was the <laughs> loveliest backhander. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess there are going to be those people out there that uh, not necessarily willing to change or feel or, uh, I don't know, I, to, I was just going to say that the benefits of being an optimist, right? And I think it's easy for me to say because I get it or it feels right to me and it uplifts me and I think it helps the world and it helps others. It doesn't need to be everyone, John. Okay, thanks. Mandela, yeah. Mandela was in prison working in this mine he could have been blinded. He could have been bitter. Mm. But he came out and with Desmond Tutu, you know, they had this peaceful revolution. And, you know, we um, I'm, I sponsor the Nelson Mandela Youth Leadership Summit um, and it's young people leading positively for a better future. But we're inspired by Mandela's words. Mandela, actually Mandela would have answered your question um, is optimism nature or nurture? Because he said, I'm an optimist. I don't know whether it's nature or nurture. I just know it's keeping my face to the sun and one foot stepping in front of the other. Oh, glorious, glorious. So it doesn't need everyone. You know, Gandhi, yeah. you know, what did the British call him? A little fakir in a, in a nappy? He brought down the British Empire. Uh, thanks for clearing that up, and that's a really great way of looking at it and, and pointing that out. And I also love how you're talking about finding the joy in the, some of the things in life. You know, it's not the new car, it's not the new house, whatever. Sure, they're great things, but the fact that we're given another day on this earth is something to be grateful for, which everyone could be grateful for right now. I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm on the planet because we know what the alternative is, right? Well, it depends whether you believe or not, because I've just come back from Samoa where, you know, there's a church on every street corner and, you know, everyone goes to church on a Sunday and, and prays and sings. So okay. I'm not sure about the eternal sort of boredom. We'll, we'll have to, you and I will have to wait and see on that one. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good point you make. I, I guess I'm meaning the physical human existence. I also like that you brought that up because I think it would, this is just my personal view, I think it would be arrogant of us to think that there wasn't a higher power greater than us in the universe. So I totally, I totally get it. However you want to label that, however you want to, however you want to call that, it's totally a personal choice. But, yeah, that's, the, that's definitely something I, I do believe. I can go to bed now every day and I think of three th great things that have happened in my day. And I do that because I've heard that what you think about and expose yourself before you go to sleep impacts your subconscious and has a, makes a difference to how you wake up. Oh, you are brilliant. I, um, I did um, some classes in prison. The last class before COVID, this um, murderer came to the class, a young man, you know, it was a, a fit of temper, but he'd been convicted under the Victorian law. And um, he still seemed a bit sour at the end of the class. And I said, well, why did you come? And he said, well, the bloke in the cell next to me, since he came to your classes, he now meditates once a day. He keeps a gratitude journal 
And he said, you'd give me a copy of your book if I came to the class. Well, you can imagine I signed it immediately. Yeah, yeah. The, the fundamental was exactly what you said, you know, this notion of gratitude at the end of the day. And you know, the science around it is so strong. Mm, um, mm. If you can keep a gratitude journal, you know, three best things at the end of the day. Now, you don't have to do it every day. There'll be times when you're feeling more amorous or you've had a few drinks and you fall straight into bed. But if every now and again you write it down, and particularly for the people who've got a slightly grumpy or pessimistic partner uh, in bed, it's a good time to just say, oh, honey, I'm writing my gratitude journal. Is there something I can add of yours to put in here? Now, the science, John, is that the next morning, Instead of listening to the news first thing, whether you're sitting on the toilet first up or you're having a cup of coffee or tea, the first thing you read in the morning is what you wrote last night. And we blokes apparently spend more time on the loo than the ladies, so we have more time to flick back um, and, and, and read back. And it, it really can be extremely uplifting. One of my, friend wrote, one of my friends wrote a book. 150 days of gratitude where she shared her gratitude journal but the other trick john that i don't see enough of in australia is that simple thank you so we're full of sorries you know you you walk behind or in front of someone in the supermarket and they're saying sorry and i always say oh god we're both shopping what are you worried about um but more thank yous and i i go to a a, a cafe in port melbourne called hurricane handsome Obviously not named after me. It could have um, been. But <laughs> what I do every time, you know, is I ask the waitresses the best thing in their day and there's always a conversation. As I'm leaving, that simple walk up to the barista and say, thank you for the coffee. And it's got an open kitchen. So I stick my head in and say, that food was fantastic this morning. I'm treated like I'm a prince there. Mm. And it, it's just that simple little thank you. And it, it's too often forgotten in our busy society. So, again, you know, something for your listeners to think about. When you're in the supermarket, less sorries and more thank yous. You know, you don't have to be sorry for pushing your trolley in front of someone else. We're all shopping. But if you'd say, thank you for letting me through or thank you to the lady or man packing the shelves or you know, thank you to the man polishing the floor. He and I always have the marvellous conversation. He's a philosopher, I think. But we start talking because he's polishing the floor in the supermarket. And Stephen King, the horror writer, um, does what you do. He does a simple gratitude meditation every morning before he gets out of bed and writes and scares us silly. Yeah. <laughs> gets his creative juice. So yeah. you've got the formula there, John, but just make sure... Yep. Next morning, you're reading that first thing. And, and the science, again, at the University of Pennsylvania and others, is that for most people, it's more powerful than an antidepressant. And one in five Australians is now taking an antidepressant. So if we can help those guys and their doctors mm. wean them off those antidepressants with mm. more gratitude mm. and more laughter and more positive greetings... Yeah. will have done a good thing for the country. And reading it the, night, the next morning, yeah. thank you, that is, uh, it feels like the two halves are complete yeah. now. But the other thing I think you said, I just want to d double check, ask your partner 
what they're grateful for as well. Invite them into it as well. So you together you can be in that mindset of gratitude to help create and foster some kind of uplifting spirit together as your partner, literally. Well, if I can add something to that, last year I was lucky enough to be in a small audience with the Dalai Lama who says that the most important thing we can do for teenagers in these days is to foster their optimism. But we can't tell them to be optimistic. You know, you as a dad, just, I've got a 16-year-old, if I say be optimistic, you know, what impact will it have? So we've got to model optimism. And, And so a lot of parents say to me, oh, yes, I ask the kids when they come home, what's been the best thing in your day? And I say, but maybe you start sometimes. You know, I've had this fantastic day. I had this great meeting or, you know, I had to do a trip to Sydney. God, it was interesting. And then what was the best thing in your day to the kid? Mm -hmm. But actually modelling the best thing in your day question. Because, you know, you want to start picking up kids from school. What did you learn today? Nothing. Oh, didn't you go to any class? Oh, doing revision. Um, you know, all those, every parent in Australia, and I'm sure everyone listening around the world would have the same story about picking up their kids from school and getting absolutely nothing. So you've got to model it sometimes, you know, and, and just say, I had a great time. Did you have one too? You know, the power of questions, when, when it's known you have that awareness to ask the right question uh, and the intention behind it that you're interested and the intention to uplift it's it's so simple and so powerful we say it on the show sometimes as adults we overcomplicate these things but they're so simple i have had the honor of having dinner with bill clinton i have seen a picture of you two together i'm so glad you raised it because i um, i wanted to ask you about it victor and i spoke for over an hour so get ready for part two as we continue our uplifting conversation for greatness Some highlights of next week's show, part two with Victor, is Charisma Unveiled. Yes, discover Victor's encounters with world leaders and the art of making someone feel like they're the center of the universe. The drushti, I think I said that right, practice. It's a, it'll boost your connection and empowerment that's coming up in next week's show. The power of applied optimism, so I'll show you. We'll explain and talk about when you apply optimism, how great it is, and practical tips for cultivating optimism to build a positive mindset. Also, uncover the questions that spark meaningful conversations and leave a lasting impact. This episode's more than a conversation. It's a journey filled with laughter, wisdom, and actionable insights. Victor Purton's passion for optimism and leadership will inspire you to embrace positive mindset in your daily life. Join Victor and I next week for part two of this uplifting voyage towards greatness. I hope this conversation has ignited a fire within you, inspiring you to take bold steps towards your own path of greatness. Guess what? The journey doesn't end here. There's so much more to explore, learn and achieve. So if you're hungry for more insights, more inspiration, and more strategies to fuel your personal and professional greatness, get ready, because the next episode is just around the corner, every Tuesday to be precise, where we'll continue to unravel the secrets to unlocking your extraordinary potential. Don't miss out on the chance to keep rising and thriving with us. Hit the subscribe button, and you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. And remember, 
Greatness is not a destination, it's a continuous journey, so let's embark on it together. Thank you so much for being part of the Rise and Thrive community. It means so much to me that you're listening, and my wish for you is that you get so much out of doing so. Keep reaching for the stars, keep pushing your boundaries, and keep embracing the challenges that come your way, because that's how we truly grow. Stay tuned, stay motivated, and get ready to rise and thrive. If you're finding value from our conversations, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Together, we can create a ripple effect of positivity, optimism, and positive change. Keep shining brightly. Your greatness knows no bounds. And remember, be great and stay awesome.